ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, which I wish someone had said that to me every morning to start the day. This is Mental Health Comedy. I'm Ed Krasnick. My co-host Jennifer Kalari coming along in just a minute. She's licensed, so thank God somebody knows what they're doing. We have two things that go great together, mental health and comedy. It is the Reese's Cup of podcasts. I'm not kidding. It's two things. We have a great taste. We have a scented program for you. Today's show, good show, really good show, really interesting show too, because this is a friend I've, I've known for many years and has been involved in comedy her whole life and in, in all kinds of areas of comedy too. And now she's co-founded an organization called Comedy Gives Back, which is really interesting and it provides emotional, financial social, all kinds of support for comedians. We don't really think about the mental health of comedians. We think that comedians are performers, they're entertainers, so what could be wrong? And the answer is everything. Uh, No, internally, it's a tough road sometimes, and you're being the opposite of what goes on in your head sometimes. Sometimes you're using it, sometimes it works against you. So we've talked a lot about that on the show, but we're going to talk some more about Comedy Gives Back, about what Zoe's been doing. Zoe Friedman is here. She'll be along in just a minute, too. But right now, I always like to talk about the fact that mental health is a topic, but it is not yet a practice. It really is a practice. And the thing is, it's something that you can do every day. There are very small things. If you've been listening to the show, a lot of the interventions, a lot of the practices are very simple, a lot simpler than some of the gymnastics that we do in our head, some of the things that we tell ourselves, some of the things that you say to yourself, the fact that we don't realize that we can talk to ourselves, we can talk to our feelings, we can talk to our thoughts, we can actually have a two-way conversation. We don't realize that, and that will account for a lot of mental health. We can really change everything. We can change a lot about how we relate in the world by the way that we, what we say to ourselves and what we say when feelings and thoughts come up. We're going to talk about some of those things. Uh, We're going to talk about isolation because this is a lot of what people face, especially comedians, that sort of makes it difficult to manage in the world, uh, certainly with mental health. So I always like to welcome in uh, the people uh, emotionally, no matter where you're at emotionally, I'm so happy that you're listening and you can find us everywhere. You can find us on Spotify and on Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts everywhere. And you can find us at makelightmedia.com, M-A-K-E-L-I-G-H-T, makelightmedia.com. All of the podcasts are there. Let me just welcome in everybody with emotional shout outs. We'll start with that. I should say these are all things that relate to childhood and, uh, and growing up. If you're practicing gratitude and the only thing you're grateful for is Pez, welcome. If the only light bright colors you can find are white, welcome. If you never went to your prom and your favorite movie is Carrie, welcome. If you were on the depression drill team in high school, welcome. If the only college that gave you a full ride was the University of Shame, welcome. If you had an extracurricular activities like comparing yourself to others club, welcome. If you were in the National Dishonor Society, welcome. If you had your therapist call during the Jesse montage in Toy Story 2, welcome. I know I did. And if you're beating yourself up even now, welcome. There's always a place for you right here on Mental Health Comedy. 
You know, inspiration is is always very important. And another great uh, app is out there to help you with your mental health. It's actually a firm maliciousness. And a firm maliciousness is, you know, they help you with affirmations. And affirmations are a very important thing. You know, I think there's some, they're experiencing, they're in a beta stage. And I think that they're they're working out some bugs. So here's a firm maliciousness, a few of the affirmation generators that I use today. I just typed in today, the word today, and I got, today is a great day for oatmeal. So not a great affirmation, but you know, you're working in the, in the right direction, turning your brain in the right direction. Appreciation, I typed in and says, I appreciate Lint. I don't think that's the best, but I, I get where they're going. And then happiness. It immediately printed out something which said, I'm happy and sitting on my porch and I appreciate everyone getting out of my business. So those aren't the best affirmations, but again, it's not going to be perfect, but you're going in the right direction. You're affirming something. So now I want to welcome in Jennifer Kalari. Jennifer has a wonderful organization called connectedparenting.com. And there are all types of resources, skills. Jennifer is a child and family therapist. She works with families all over the world. She works with self-parenting, which is something that we all need to practice. And Jennifer, good morning, first of all, and thank you for being here. And I want to, you know, I want to talk first of all about, you know, about isolation. This is what what makes mental health such a, an issue, and, and there's so much stigma about me- mental health in the world, that is, is the fact that when we feel something that is overwhelming, or when we have certain, certain feelings, certain emotions, we don't connect with other people, and we certainly don't connect with ourselves. What are some skills, or what do you experience with people to help them with isolation? That's such an important topic. It really is. And one of the things that happens when you're anxious or you're depressed or you're overwhelmed is that you just, you can't think about anything else. You can't process anything else. You become very internal. It can almost look like you're becoming very selfish, but you're not. You're kind of in self-preservation mode where you're just kind of hanging on. And even though your brain is telling you that, which is a very primal thing, go and hide, right? If something's chasing you, you want to go hide. You want to shut off the world and you want to go hide. And that that's important if something's chasing you, but it's not great if you're trying to live your life and nothing's chasing you and you're trying to function and work and, and stay connected to the people who love you. So isolation can on a very primal level feel like the thing to do, but it actually makes things so much worse. So here's a few things that you can try to do. One of the things that happens when you're really, really anxious or depressed is that all kinds of sensory information becomes completely overwhelming. Sound, taste, touch, like it just it just starts pounding your your brain. It can feel completely painful at times and you just want to shut everything off. And you don't really care about what's happening to other people because you're really in self-preservation mode, which makes the people who love you kind of want to pull back because you re- you know it feels like you're rejecting them or it feels like you're not interested in them. And it's one of the things that can cause people who are struggling to, to struggle even further. So the first thing to do is recognize that that's a program. It's your safety program that's running. It's the security system in your brain telling you that something is incredibly dangerous, but in that moment, it may not be absolutely life-threatening. So Ed, we've talked about this before, that you check in with yourself, you observe yourself, 
Realize that you're the thinker of your thoughts and say to yourself, okay, is this life-threatening? Well, it feels life-threatening, but it's actually not. There's not actually something in front of me that's going to attack me. And the second question you ask yourself is, well, if it's not life-threatening, then is there any action I can take right now? So if it's the middle of the night and you're worried about something that's you know going to happen tomorrow, has happened already, there is nothing in that moment that you can do. You just There's no action that you can take. And then you try to ground yourself. So you try to ground yourself in anything at all that you can find that is more pleasant. It could be how soft your sheets are. It could be the temperature in the room. It could be the coffee you're sipping. It could be the water that you're drinking. It really doesn't matter. But grounding yourself in something sensory that reminds you that it's okay in the moment can pull you out of the stratosphere and down and back into your own body. Some other really simple things when you're feeling better is you create a little slideshow. Have a slideshow of your pets, of your family, great trips you've been on, favorite movies or books that you've read. Put a soundtrack to it. It's not that hard to do on your phone. Put your headphones in and listen to that. Have that ground yourself so you're not feeling so isolated, so cut off from the people who love you. And it's a really tough one because it's our instinct sometimes to shove people away. When we're feeling overwhelmed, we really do need people. It's sort of unconditional love and support that we need in those moments. That's our fuel. That's actually what grounds us. I think that the having pictures around uh, is, a, is a very good thing. They were working on studies for, for anorexia. And what they were finding to recalibrate the brain is to actually look at pictures of nature. Mm-hmm. And that nature is, is actually not even being in nature but seeing pictures of nature yes yeah actually grounds you mm-hmm. listening to birds either going outside and listening to birds or finding like bird songs or bird calls on youtube or whatever there's something incredibly calming about birds because if the birds are chirping everything's okay there's no natural disaster if the birds are happy you're happy it's, it's a very primal thing that's kind of built into our brain And that's why listening to birds can be very calming. It sounds so ridiculous, but there's these small little things that we can be doing that actually can help us in such a big way. I've been thinking a lot about this Mm self-talk and what what I say to myself, what we say to ourselves, you know, internally, and to actually talk to the emotions themselves, Mm -hmm. to actually say, if it's anxiety, to actually say the word anxiety. Anxiety, oh, I see you're there again. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, anger. Oh, you, I, I see you. I hear you anger. Actually giving it almost like the movie Inside Out, like Pete Doctor was doing, where you're, you're trying to, you're trying to actually make it into a, into a thing so that you can make choices about how you deal with it. Is that something that, you know, that people can, can actually do? I mean, it sounds a little crazy, but I'll tell you what's crazy. What's crazy is actually suppressing the feeling and pretending it's not there. Yeah. We live in a culture that we've been trained from the minute we open our eyes to not feel, to avoid, to buy something, smoke something, drink something, dive into a video game, do anything we can but feel what we're feeling. And feelings are information. They're just information and they're information uh, designed to teach you something about that moment and to guide you in that moment. So what we think of as negative emotions like anger, anxiety, uh, frustration, fear, that think, you know, the rumble strip on the side of the highway. And if your car kind of drifts, the whole car goes, right? That's what negative emotions are. If you're feeling those things, it's like, whoa, I'm kind of off the road. I need to get back into the center of the road. But we freak out and think the emotion is the thing 
but it's not. It's it's the difference between what your best self, your highest self, your what I call your true north, what you know is right in that situation and what you know is it's just your inner wisdom. And then how you're behaving in that moment or what you're feeling in that moment is so disconnected. It's so far away from who you really are that your emotions, those negative emotions are going to shake you and say, what are you doing? <laughs> you're, you're feeling angry, but you're behaving in a way that isn't helping you, that isn't going to work. And then the idea is that you listen to those emotions and you let them guide you back onto the road into the center. But we freak, we freak out and we run away from our emotions. We, we avoid them and they chase us. They'll, they'll keep trying to find us and give us that information. So just sitting there for a second and going, okay, anxiety, I hear you. All right. This is anxiety. This is what I'm feeling. This is what it feels like when your bank account is low or whatever human emotion we're having in that moment. Just let it sit in us for a second. Don't run away from it. You can thank it. It sounds nuts, but you say, thank you, anxiety. Thank you. I get it. You're trying to alert me, but I'm actually not in, in it's not an emergency right now. I get that you're trying to to tell me something, but this is not actually life-threatening. And that's how you guide yourself back onto the road. It is amazing that even if you have that in your mind, if you have that in your mind that your brain is actually trying to protect you from something and feels like you're in danger and you can actually say, thank you, brain. I know you think I'm in danger and and you're on the job. All right. Thanks. I know you're on the job. If you can say something like like yesterday, I actually had this happen to me. I uh, forgot the password to my bank account. And I don't write anything down, okay? So everything, I'm, I'm actually really good with numbers, and I'm one of those people who has everybody's number in their head, and I've always been that way. So I, I, can, I may not have talked to you for four years. I know what your number is. <laughs> so I forgot it, okay? And I forgot that I was putting in the wrong password, and I didn't understand why I couldn't get into my bank account. And I started to go down. I started to panic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really did. I started to panic and then I started future projecting of like, okay, now I can't, I don't have access to money. How am I going to pay my bill? I started doing that thing. Mm -hmm. And then in the back of my head was this thing of like, oh, my brain's going to work because it's trying to protect me from thinks I'm in danger. There you go. Oh, I see. I see what's happening here. Oh, you know what? I actually am going to look at something in the present that I can do. Oh, here is, I'm, I'm sitting in this chair. I really like this chair. This is a good chair. Oh, I can take a breath here. Oh, that'll be, that'll be something. And then all of a sudden, I, I won't say that I didn't feel any concern, but I wasn't going down the elevator shaft. There you go. Which is how I normally would be if I didn't do anything to relate to that. If I, if I didn't turn on consciousness of any kind. Awareness See, I, I of love any kind. that. And that, that sounds so simple. And people might think, oh, that's so easy to do with just a small thing. But the truth is, if we do that all the time over everything, we are constantly setting up our biochemistry to be living in a state of disaster all the time, right? And it's a little bit like if you're, I don't know, you're boiling some noodles for your lunch. And when you take the, the pot off the stove, they stop, it stops boiling right away. But if you put it right back on a second later, it's going to go straight to a boil. Anxiety is a little bit like that. You kind of have to take it off the stove and let it cool, right? But we never let ourselves cool. And what I love about that example Ed, is it, that sounds like such a small thing, but it's not. If you do that often, if you do that more often, if you start driving the car instead of letting it fly off the road, 
right? Use the rumble strip and be like, okay, I get it. My brain's trying to save me here, but you know what? This isn't actually an emergency. And if I actually stay calm here, I'll probably calm my brain down, turn my frontal lobe back on, which is the part of the brain that can actually remember your password. I can actually control my brain. And this is what so many of us don't realize. We can actually control this. We can control our emotions. They don't have to control us, but it is a practice. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot to rebuild and rewire but it, it, that's exactly what you need to be doing all day long over everything. And you can always practice this in any moment. And the other thing is you're not doing it perfectly. Like you don't have to do these things perfectly. You can still, you're still going to go on the rumble strip. Sure. But while you're on the rumble strip, you can actually say things to yourself. Mm-hmm. You can be on the rumble strip and say things to yourself. And what happens is you're taking your foot off the gas a little bit. So the car is not going as fast. And then the car slows down mm-hmm. and eventually you can start making turns. That's right. But the car slows down. So this is, it's a lot of imagery and a lot of things like that, but that's really, that's a concrete example of something. Well, this is exciting. This has been quite a, quite a situation here, but we are lucky. We have a really great guest. I don't know how many years I've known her, but it's been a while. And she has been in comedy her whole life. And right now, she's doing something really interesting, as she always is. But this is a nonprofit organization that helps comedians. It helps them financially due to COVID and the fact that, you know, there are many comedians are out of work. It helps them mentally with mental health support. And it helps them with social support. We often don't think of comedians needing any support, but we all do. And so Zoe has co-founded an organization called Comedy Gives Back. They've raised a lot of money and they've helped a lot of people. And then she produced a wonderful documentary on the history of the improv and close to her heart because her dad, Bud Friedman, actually founded the improv and owned it for many years, ran it. And she is none other than Zoe Friedman. Zoe, is there any chance that we're going to do this interview? (laughs) Did you introduce me? I did. Hi, Ed. Hi, Hi. Zoe and Jennifer. This is, this is fantastic. We're all together again. You guys can hear me. I'll ask you that first. Yes. We can. Yes. Okay. That's what I always ask when I go into therapy. I always say to the therapist, can you hear me? <laughs> and, and can you understand me is question number two. Zoe, you had a very unique uh, upbringing. Can you just mention one of your babysitters as a kid was a famous comedian. And can you uh, mention this, the, the, the kind of life that you had growing up with a dad and a mom who were in the comedy business? You never know it's unusual until you meet, you know, until you go off to college and realize, oh yeah. I mean, I, I knew my high school friends didn't have parents who ran a comedy club, but still it really is when you're on your own. But no, yeah, I, my parents started the first comedy club in America, first dedicated stand-up comedy club called The Improvisation in 1963 in Hell's Kitchen, New York, and later out here in LA, where I live now in 1975, and now they're all over the country, I guess. But, um, but yeah, my, my upbringing was unique, and uh, I wouldn't have uh, traded it with anybody for the world, crazy as it might have been. You know, so Jay Leno would, uh, not a babysitter, but definitely would stay over on our couch from time to time. We'd, my sister and I would wake up to find the, the big old hippie on our couch. Andy Kaufman 
sort of was a host of a children's cabaret a once a month uh, Sunday afternoon <laughs> show for kid performers. And he used to host it. Uh, and that might have been a cheap form of babysitting for my parents. Look, we can get them with Andy Kaufman for and a group of kids for two hours. Let's go drink at the bar. No, I don't know what they did. but um, So he would host the children's cabaret as either foreign man or uh, Elvis or which you know a foreign man turned into Latka and or the mean Mr. and me guy which turned into Tony Clifton anyway that was pretty great am I forgetting anybody else and didn't didn't he didn't he babysit not babysit but hang hung out with you guys and ended up buying you milk and cookies and yeah you know at his show I mean he would do that for everybody um, I don't think he did it just for us but Maybe there was an instance, but, you know, he would bunny hop around Times Square from the children's cabaret. <laughs> so, you know, he would take the whole 50 kids around Times Square from the improv and bunny hop. Cause, and, yeah, and, like, milk cookies and there was ice cream Sundays. And every time you would go to an Andy Kaufman show, he would take you for milk and cookies or spaghetti. I remember going to the old spaghetti factory uh, in Hollywood when I was a kid. You know, so he was a big part because the other thing is he was so – imaginative you know his comedy was so unique and it was you know pretty ahead of its time right and and but fun for kids right a lot of comics were you know monologists which I it's not like I I didn't like it I don't remember not liking it but it wasn't probably playing to a, a six-year-old <laughs> whereas Andy Kaufman was you know singing and singing into tears and dressing up and you know doing kind of these you know meta you know experimental kind of thing so it was really fun to have so you him. so you but so you get to know comedians in a way that people don't you know that you get to know that side but also i would imagine that working with letterman and seeing you know you're seeing comedians at their at their height of stress and their height of creativity and wanting to further their careers and that's another thing that you did for many years yeah you know i got to see yeah that was an interesting growth like good extension of kind of growing up at the comedy club when I worked at the David Letterman show one of my roles I was there for almost 11 years 10, 10 and a half years I booked and you know produced the stand-up comics and to sort of stand backstage and produce the segment with the comic you know and go out and to the clubs with them and work on the set I, I think I really I joke I, and my husband says don't say this but like I felt like for a while, I was like a comic whisperer. <laughs> yeah. I was like, don't say that ever. No. <laughs> um, yeah. But anyway, I've worked with comics and I, you know, uh, Jeff Garland, a friend of mine to this day, came to do Letterman a number of years ago. And he remembers me and, he, you know, I knew him through the comedy world, but he remembers me holding his hand, talking him through, talking him down. And he'll never, ever forget that. And he did like a non-airing pilot presentation for, you know, he's like a, you know, that was meaningful, I think, too. I remember um, comics sort of crying after doing Letterman because it was such a, 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 such a, a goal for every comic of that generation. And it was so meaningful and it was a privilege to be part of something so meaningful, for sure. But I guess that is part of it that I would see. And I would see the downside of certainly... The, you know, comedians who didn't make it or comedians that my parents helped. And both my parents are very um, philanthropic with the comic community, even though they ran a comedy club. And, you know, probably some people said, you know, probably underpaid comedians. I don't know what the 
say, you know, nobody would tell me necessarily about my parents, probably truthfully, but I think they were good comedians and my mother would give her last dollar to a comedian to take a cab home and she would walk. I mean, that, 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 that feels true. And so my comedy is back and what I've been doing most recently is sort of a, also kind of a natural extension of kind of how, how I've been immersed in the community. Um, you know, comics are fragile. Comics have a really hard life everybody's life is hard so I don't mean to say <laughs> but you know there is a certain lifestyle that comes with comedy where you're on the road you spend a lot of time alone you know there's a either a high we, you know and I think there's information on both sides is there a higher occurrence of mental illness in the comedy community or is it just they're more verbal about it and they talk about it and make careers on it <laughs> you know is it yeah. more uh you know um visible right so you know, when we started Comedy Gives Back, and I have two partners, Amber J. Lawson and Jody Lieberman, we knew that comedians much, you know, we looked around and we saw like actors has, you know, support, uh, not only do they have a union, you know, SAG-AFTRA, but they also have um, the Actors Fund, you know, and musicians live a much more similar life probably to comedians in terms of lifestyle. And they had something called Music Cares. And we looked around and was like, is that possible that like no, the comedy community is not taking care of their own? And what I know is the comedy community does take care of their own. I've never seen a comedy. I mean, a community who rallies for their friends in, in a more powerful way. I mean, I've, I've always been astounded about how every time I've done a fundraiser, even if it's not for comedy is back, but like, you know, whether it be for a, um, a comedian's wife who has no, you know, no health insurance years ago and had ovarian cancer, right? Like people get together and they rally. So, and I also know from my time at Letterman, David Letterman was very, very loyal to the comedians he came up with. And yes. as a booker producer, I was responsible to booking, to book his friends twice a year. And at least twice a year, you know, at, probably at late night, it was a little bit easier. Uh, you know, and late shows a bit tougher just in terms of the, you know, profile of the show, but he would make sure that his friends would get on twice a year because I think that would help them, you know, that got them into this, the Astra that got them their insurance, you know, and it was no accident, right. That that was what he was doing to help his friends and so we know it's already going on. So Comedy is Back was really formed to give a scaffolding and infrastructure to what's already happening. And we, you know, we really modeled on our, our initial vision on kind of music cares. We have a, uh, one of the directors, executive directors there is on our board and he's been really forthcoming with how they do it. It's been helped fill it in anyway. So we started, we had our first fundraiser last December to start these general grants, you know, for hey, uh, well, whether it be chemical dependency, whether it be, um, you know, mental uh, therapy, whether it be financial crisis for unforeseen, you know, circumstances, we would be there. But then, and then, you know, COVID-19 happened. And who, who would have, we, we would have never guessed that that was maybe the greatest need of the comedy community, right? Like, all gigs canceled, they can't work from home. I mean, there's some Zoom shows, right? But like, the rug pulled out from the whole community. So we rallied and we did a show a live digital telethon a live stream telethon on april 4th called laughing and we raised money and we've been giving out grants i think we're over 600 grants now um of comedians and continuing to grow our 
funds and continue to grants and bigger and also going back and returning to our initial vision which are these other type of grants that help you know comedians who um you know uh, not just covid related but hit on hard times but you know covid's hurting everybody right so anyway that's yeah, that's what we've been doing and that's yeah. amazing it's amazing it's amazing work and it, and it helps you've helped so many people and i it is true the comedy community it, it, it's like once you do stand up with somebody on the road once like you spend a week or two weeks or three weeks you're friends for life that's right. You're connected. You're friends for life. It's like you. Yeah. It's like going to camp. You went to camp, or you went to college, and you survived something. You came through it's like, something. It's like Jennifer and I together today after our, our <laughs> caps. I mean, well, nothing's you, as hard as that. No, nothing. <laughs> I mean, people have challenges, but not like that. Sorry, really. sorry to bring yeah. it down, but I, no, I felt is. I was in the bunker with her. You know. No. Yeah, yeah. We were all in the in the in the tech bunker. It's the, the tech, tech bunker. bunker. Sorry, yeah. I know. I now, sorry. Now, now, now I have to. I have to say. I mean, it, it's really interesting that Jennifer, we've talked about the brain a lot, yeah. and we talk about for, you talk about Ferrari brains. Sure. Yeah. Like comedians have these very fast brains, but what yeah. they also have is they have a lot of feelings and a lot of emotions and a lot of thoughts and isolation and the demand to be funny and perform. So you mix that all together, and what you come up with is a perfect storm of craziness. Well, what's interesting is to have a brain that can find the subtleties, right, and pick out those little things that everyone can laugh at and, and can see that much detail. A brain like that, I mean, that, that's why it's genius on stage, right? But it's not in the middle of the night when you're lying in bed and your brain is going the other direction, right? right? And you're thinking about all the things that are wrong and all the things you're upset about and and, and I don't, it, it's interesting because this has come up before, like I, I don't want people to be less funny. Like, of course, it's great to be funny and whatever you're finding is funny, that's wonderful. It's just, you, you, want it, you want your brain to go in the direction that you want it to go and not in the direction that you don't want it to go. And that's mm -hmm. what a lot of artists, comedians, anyone who's really phenomenal with language uh, is likely to have a, the kind of brain that doesn't stop and just turns on itself and thinks constantly and has no off button. I can't tell you how many kids that I've talked to in my practice that are just like, just wish I could turn my brain off, just mm. turn it off just for a little while. And that's why we're so big on helping people learn that it takes time and it takes practice, but you can rewire your brain. It's, it's not an immediate thing. It's not going to happen just because you know it. It's going to take practice, but you can, you can wire your own brain to work for you, not against you. Mm. For anybody that's listening and, and, you know, maybe you have a kid who's creative in this way, or maybe it's yourself, what's the, what's the simplest thing that you can do to begin the process of saying, I'm going to start to turn this around. I'm going to start to do something different so that I feel more at ease. Well, let, let's go back to the rumble strip, right? Because what happens when people hit the rumble step, strip? is they panic and they think that, you know, anxiety and depression and all those negative emotions are the problem. They're not the problem. They're the symptom of the problem. It's your brain trying to talk to you, trying to teach you something. And if you don't pay attention to it, it's going to keep trying to get your attention, right? So, so the first thing is, and if you're driving along and you hit the rumble strip, the worst thing you can do is like ah, flip the, you know, turn the wheel too hard and then you're, you know, going the wrong direction. Just gently go, oh, okay. On the rumble strip, that's not great. You said it earlier, Ed, just take your foot off the 
accelerator and gently guide yourself back. And so what, what I mean by that is put that in practical terms, pick a thought that's a little more neutral, that's slightly better than the last thought. So you're driving along or you're thinking to yourself, you know, everything's wrong and my life is terrible and I hate the way I am and I'm this and I'm that. And then just find one thought, but I am okay at this. Or this morning, okay, the whole day did suck, but there was that one moment. Like, just it's like you're climbing yourself out of a hole. Just when you have this, this sentence that you've created out loud, you do this out loud, and it feels a little more positive, then try again. Find one that's even more positive. And if it's too positive, because one of the things that happens is, you know, people, you know, will say to you, oh, just think how lucky you are, and just be in a place of gratitude, which is great when you're in a decent space. Mm -hmm. When you're feeling really sorry for yourself, well, now you just feel like a horrible person. Because not only do I feel horrible, but I shouldn't even feel horrible because I have so much good stuff happening to me, right? Or so many things that I should be grateful for. So that doesn't actually work in the moment. You, that's just too far to go in one thought round, right? But you can just kind of climb up and then, then you find a thought that's a little better and there's less resistance. Because like, if, if it's a thought that's too positive, your brain's going to go, what are you doing? Being happy. Don't, don't be happy. You have no business being happy. Or don't, you can't not be anxious. You need to be anxious. You need to feel like this or you're gonna, your life's going to go down the tubes, right? So you just find these little sentences that are a little more general, a little more neutral. You just kind of re-say the whole rant with a slightly more positive twist on it and you keep going and you keep going until, you, until you've climbed back out of that hole or you've gotten yourself back on the road without flipping the car. And it is constant and it takes practice. And there's gonna be lots of times we don't feel like doing it. You wanna just revel there and like just stay there for a little while and flop around and that's okay. Just don't let yourself stay there for long. Take some action, take the wheel and try to pull your brain into a slightly more positive or even neutral direction and just do that over and over and over again. And part of it too is noting it, right? You're actually saying, oh, here's anxiety again. Mm -hmm. Oh, here it is. Look at that. Welcome. Welcome. It's good to, you know, I see you. I see you over there. I feel you. I certainly feel you in my gut right now. <laughs> I feel you. I put my hand on my stomach the other day, which I never do, and my solar plexus, because so much crap comes from there. It's all going from my brain to my, it's, it's like it's a highway connection, right? So trying to teach people that community, even if you're exhibiting behavior that you don't like and you made a choice that you don't you don't look i'm in bed all day today and i'm telling you it's it's freedom if you can tell somebody it's freedom it's not just talking it's like saying okay this is what's happening i accept it you know today was a day when i took a i, I took a dirt nap today <laughs> you know so what hardest part with loved ones is they think they're helping but they they often say things that are so not helpful just go for a walk <laughs> just think about your happy place. Like that's not going to help when you're lying in bed and you can't even get up and take a shower, right? That's not going to help. So for the loved ones listening who know they have someone that they care very much about who goes to this space, just soothe, just hold their hand, just sit with them and say, yeah, it sucks, but I'm here, right? That you don't have to come up with some brilliant thing that Anna Freud would say. Sometimes you just need to be there. And that's and as a parent, this takes Zoe, this takes us back to where we just were with our kids. That's terrifying. Mm. I don't want to stay with my kid in this really dark, angry, or yucky, or sad place. It's terrifying. Mm. But often, that's what they need. And I work with kids all the time, and they tell me that. I wish my parents would just be with me. Mm. Just listen. Just stop 
telling me what I need to do. Mm -hmm. I want to hear your latest book that you've read. I just want you to sit with me. Right. Um, and that's yeah. important. That's important with friends, with family members, with your kids. Okay. So, so Zoe, mental health and you, do you guys get along? <laughs> uh, for the most part, yes. You know, I was uh, one of those sort of early adopters of, of therapy, uh, and therefore my, pursue, my pursuing of mental health and improvement started probably when I was 10 or 11. My parents got divorced, and my mom, who's a very pro, I mean, maybe yes, but anyway, took us to sort of the Jewish family services. We got therapy and years later as a teenager, I was in, you know, so I've, I, I get along because I've actively worked on it. I love all the language you guys talk about on the podcast, like in terms of talking to it and not letting it run you. I mean, I remember a really defining moment for me was a couple of years ago and I had Pema Shodron, Pema, you know who oh, I'm Pema, Pema Chodron, yeah. Right. Yeah. Her book next to my bed and I I think I was given to, to like five years before and had it by my you know bed on that bedside table that has the pyramid of books and uh, that are remain unread. And I picked it up. I opened to this or I read and I read up to this page about actually turning and turning to the pain, turning to the trauma, embracing it, opening your arms to it. And I, it was kind of late in the game after all that therapy for me to learn that it's sort of an entity, right? And that not to run from it. It, it was interesting that I, that hadn't clicked. And so, because I think the things you run from just grow, you know, and when you, and, and I think that's to naming stuff. I think that's to talking to it, you know, talking to your feelings, talking to your brain, all the stuff you guys were referencing before. I, you know, it's hard once your lid is flipped, you know, that's language that we get to talk to our kids about, right? The yeah. frontal lobe and all of that, but it's hard to get back there if you're already on your way there. But I don't know, that's how I get along with mental illness. I, uh, I, uh, pretty okay. Some days are hard, but mostly, mostly I have a lot of tools to deal with a lot of shit. When you get into that mm. zone where it's like, oh no, mm. What, what is it that you turn to? Sometimes breath, as I just did. Yeah. <laughs> Breathing, calm myself down. Sometimes a big hit of pot. I think that's the running piece of it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's the mental health piece of it, but that is one of my, my things, my demons, my um, crutches. You know, I, I am a meditator. I studied transcendental meditation about two years ago, a year and a half ago, and I had always been on and off meditating, and the TM has been really transformative for me. And so I know that if I, not to say that if I do that regularly, um, I don't start going off the road. Like, what did you call those, Jennifer? The rumble? The yeah, rumble, the rumble strip. Yeah. The rumble strip, you know. I, I know I go to the rumble strip more if I'm not regularly meditating. So I guess breath, you know, I don't do the naming of it in the moment. I mean, that often, right? I can talk to it. I understand it intellectually, but the truth is like, I, I think those are great tools and I think I need to utilize them more, you know? So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. That's yeah. A, well, you're obviously, you're very, very well aware and very articulate about uh, what goes on with you, which is a real gift to be able to 
to do that. And anything that you do that's a choice, that's a conscious choice, you know, is a vote for freedom. You know, it's the right, it's, it's the way to, the way to go. I think that's what I do. I don't know if a lot of people do it, but for me, it's like, I feel like I have to learn everything perfectly or Mm -hmm. do perfectly. And that especially counts to, you know, therapy and (laughs) happiness and, you know, being centered and, and, and being alive. I mean, I, I feel like that's what, you know, I, I put a lot of pressure on myself. So I'm one of those kind of people. So to not do it perfectly, but to have an intention is really a big thing. It's like, what is the intention? And Jennifer, we, we've talked about self-parenting, not a term that you hear a lot of, oh. um, not a term that parents hear a lot of. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, you have, you have a teenager, so right there, but but I know I know your teenager is a little twice. bit a little bit, di- little bit different than, than my, I mean I know you have a great relationship with your with your not so much no I know you have a bad re- no there is it's no such thing teams. as a bad relationship it's oh my everything. god it's oh mixed my god. he is such a teenager I struggled they are yeah what's the biggest challenge like staying in the present moment, right? Like I think anything that happens makes me go 20 years in the future to painting a picture that isn't always so positive, right? Where some behavior now defines, you know, some com- some flip comment that he makes or some action. I then zoom ahead with what that's going to look like when he's, you know, 30 and worry, right? It's just worry and fear that just like transport me out of the present moment. So I think like meeting him where he is, I think is really challenging for me these days. Do you try to fix things or are you? Always, always. Okay. So there's, there's a big, that's a, that's a big issue, you know, for me too. try and Jennifer fixing things. It's just, it can't, it can't be done, can it? Well, listen, you can't control conditions, really, especially teenagers. (laughs) Uh, You can only control your response to them. And then in choosing that, or trying at least to do that, and I'm I'm big on repair, which I'll talk about in a second, because of course we're going to blow it. We blow it all the time as parents. But going back and repairing and using that as a a teaching moment for, for both of you is really important. And then you're modeling to your kids. You know what? I'm trying really hard to stay centered. I'm trying to parent from a place of love, not fear. And that's really hard when you have kids. And um, so when you were talking about that, I mean, most parents do that. They, they just, I call it, you know, their kids' life flashes before their eyes, right? The second they don't do something or don't hand something in or won't look after themselves, that's it. They're going to be on my couch forever. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And that happens. And it, it, this is why, you know, emotions are so complex because you can't have love without anxiety. It's not possible. Yeah. You go together, right? <laughs> you have to care about something so much or someone so much to love them. And so there you're back in the canoe again, right? Standing in the center. <laughs> when is it responding to your child versus reacting to your child? And of course, we're all going to react. We're all going to lose it. I mean, my whole practice is teaching this, right? And I've written books and I'm talking on podcasts. I lost it on my daughter yesterday. It was, 16. it was ugly. And I had to go back and repair. And you know what? That's, that's okay. That's real. That's life. You know, you, 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 as long as you're trying and you're modeling that for your kids and you go back and you take that time to repair, that's really all you can do. And if they still, you know, act like the teenager through all of it and don't give you 
what maybe you're looking for. And by you, I mean me, like, right. You just have to detach almost not from the reaction, but it's like, I want to go back and repair. And he still doesn't quite know. I know. Find, and it doesn't really matter how old your kids are. And this can be true with parents. You have to find this place of like loving, humorous detachment. I don't know. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's the only way you can get through it, especially the teenagers. So teenagers look like us. They're as tall as us. They seem to have it all together, but their brain isn't finished growing. It's not finished until they're 25. So, and I always say to parents, you're not a parent. You're a substitute frontal lobe. Oh, oh, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yes. I don't like, by the way, as a person, I don't like that role. Right. As like, a person, I know. Yeah. It's, as a per, as a human being, like the way I want to engage in the world with people and interact is not that, and that's why it's so. I think challenging. I understand. I have to do that. Like that's not. I'm not fighting. So it. it really helps to think of yourself as a substitute brain function. That because <laughs> then you're not being horrible. You're being a frontal lobe, right? That's, you yeah. Look at your kid in the eye and say, "I love you." I'm being your frontal lobe. <laughs> You, you don't have one yet. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't mean you respect them and they're not learning and they don't have some agency over certain things. But, you know, 14, 15, 16 year old thinks all kinds of things are good ideas. Oh, oh my God. And then he wants to share with me. I was like, what do you think my response to that's going to be that you are jumping a fence and swimming in somebody's swimming pool that, you know, that's going to catch you. (laughs) Yeah. You know, when you said like they do, they like, because they're, they, he's taller than me. You treat them like an adult because they almost look it, right? And I remember my pediatrician saying that when when my son was two, like terrible twos are only when you look at your kid and they're now preverbal, ambulatory. So they're like little human beings, and you ex- then your expectation of them changes than when they're just kind of like probably googly, you know, infants. And then he's like, the worst, the terrible twos comes when you expect them to sit at a restaurant with you just because they know how to talk now or walk with you, you know, no, they're still two, you know, that if you change your expectation around your twos, you won't have terrible twos. It was the best advice, right? Well, you, well, you talk about things. expectations, you talk about meeting, right. meeting him where he is. Mm-hmm. And that, and that involves not fixing. That involves, I'm listening to you, I'm with you, and I'm here. And that and that's really hard for a parent to do. It, it's it seems like it's opposite of what a parent should do. Right. It's actually what a parent should do. Yeah. Right. The truth is you have to start there. That's where you meet them. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes, mm-hmm. there. Sometimes you have to tell them that certain things they're doing are really dangerous and there's consequences because they need to feel that inhibition from it. Right. The the frontal lobe job is to uh, organize, prioritize, motivate. Um, take perspective, all of those things. And until they're about 25, their brain doesn't have all the hardware to do that. And the, the teenage brain is actually different. It, it, they have different serotonin levels. They get bored much more easily. But a lot of teenagers like just downgrade danger and they feel invincible. That's not going to happen to me. I mean, look what's happening with COVID. They'll look right at you and say, that's not going to happen to me. Uh, yeah. Right? It's not. And they, yeah. their brain is set up and maybe I'm sure there's a biological reason for that because teenagers needed to go out and do all kinds of things for us and mm-hmm. be right at a different time in history, bust down barriers and fight for us and all kinds of things. But our world has kind of flipped that upside down. So, you know, they, the brain is different and they're built to push back on us. And I'm kind of convinced that they sort of have to all, I mean, they love us, but almost hate us to some degree. So they'll actually leave. 
and maybe you have to hate them so they're actually ready to go. So it's complicated. It's the biological imperative that this fighting happens. I remember hearing this years ago, reading about it, that like part of the reason they can't be too comfortable because they have to leave so they can re go out and find their people and reproduce. And, you know, that's the imperative, the biological imperative. It's, it's all a master plan. And we think we're so unique or we think, you know, but I just don't understand how it, John Mulaney had a joke. He goes, teenagers are like the meanest people. They like, they could zero in on your Achilles heel and just say it right to you in the most sort of, you know, meaningful way. That's what it's like. They are. They are. They can be so mean. And teenagers <laughs> especially can be very mean. And then the, it gets complicated because it touches our own wounds, right? Our, mm -hmm. our own traumas and our own, the, the rhythms and things that have happened in our own life. It, it, you just be so aware of when you get triggered by them and they're so smart, they'll figure out your triggers. And that's where you have to have that loving detachment and you have to keep finding this way to meet them in the middle and then just be really strong and just say, I love you enough for you to be mad at me. I love you enough for you to think I'm the worst mother in the mm, world. That's how much okay. I love you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, like, you're, you're ruining my life. I love you that much that you think I'm going to go without. Yeah. yeah, that's how much I love you. Well, Jennifer, what, I guess that's the response I was going to say. What is the response to I'm jumping over a fence and diving into somebody's pool? So, What's okay, the response? So, interesting. I mean, this really gets into the whole connected parenting model, which is, you know, I teach parents how to use language and, um, and words as empathy, as, as, sorry, as medicine, right? That actually releases oxytocin and, and you know, natural opiates and all kinds of beautiful reward chemicals that actually calm your teenager or your child down. And my teenage book is actually called You're Ruining My Life. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but so it's, it's using language to really connect with them first and that's the medicine, right? So you would start with what was, tell me what that's like. What does that feel like? What's so fun about that? What's happening in your body when you're doing that and you know you shouldn't be there and they're like, oh my God, it's awesome. And I feel all this adrenaline. And then you can sort of say, well, you know, I get that. And then adrenaline's really powerful. I so understand that. But here's where I come in as your mom. I love you enough for you to be mad at me, but that's not okay. That's <laughs> trespassing. That's dangerous. That's, you, you know, that just shows me that you may, and, and it's, it's, it's interesting because teenagers always talk about, leave me alone. You don't get it. <laughs> Nobody else parents act like you. Like they're always totally, yeah. that, right? And, you know, I, I can do my, you know, I'm old enough to do this and that. And then the, really the response is, but if you were old enough, you wouldn't do that. Like, <laughs> well, really, who has a functioning frontal lobe would not do that. Right, right. Yeah. Good plan, right? <laughs> so it's just this idea of maintaining the bond and connecting with them and meeting with, and using empathy and compassion and connecting before correcting. Mm which is really important. That's about staying yeah. in the present though. That's the, I go to yeah. the worry or the fix or the, you know. Yeah, yeah. And your, really your heart races, you, you start getting hummingbird heart, I'm yeah. guessing. You start yeah. fluttering inside and it's like, oh my God, what am I gonna do to stop this? He's gonna wind up under a bridge. That's what right, <laughs> he's in the corner, he's in the out, yeah. Well, that, well, that's mean, what happens, it, yeah. It is, it is, and then you go right to parenting from a place of fear. What? Are you kidding? What are you thinking? Like, that's where we go, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, we know where they're, how they're going to respond to that. So this, none of this is easy, but it goes along with what Ed and I have been talking about in most of the episodes. This, this is practice, right? Yeah. And, when you, and if you lose it, you go back and you go, you know what? Totally went off the deep end there. Freaked out. Totally reacted to what you told me. I would like to try that again. Right, come back mm. and show them that you can have a different conversation. And 
And sometimes they just flip out anyways, because the same reason he jumped over the fence and jumped in the pool <laughs> was he's addicted to adrenaline. Mm. And so what happens with little kids and especially teenagers and especially teenage boys is they're actually seeking the feeling that they get when we inhibit. They're looking for a frontal lobe substitute. They're do look at me, You're like look what I'm doing, mom. Right. Like are you, yeah. are you gonna me out here because I need a frontal lobe because clearly I don't have one. He's not <laughs> favorite, right? yeah. So what he's doing is he's looking for that adrenaline hit. So when you freak out, that's it. That's it. And we start freaking out. He gets a blast of adrenaline. He then gets to fight with you. He then gets all of his shame and his guilt out because he's probably feeling bad on something. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right? And then you become this horrible monster. See, this is why I can't talk to you, right? <laughs> and off you go. And he actually walks away from an interaction like that with a hit of adrenaline, just like ADHD medication, just like Vyvanse or Ritalin. His frontal lobe has been stimulated and electricity has been sent there. His brain comes into balance. What he, whatever frontal lobe he has is actually activated now because it's been stimulated. And he walks away feeling pretty good. <laughs> and here's the shrug. That's how it works. Oh my God, that's amazing! Like that what is. a dichotomy of, of that's of, a dynamic. Of, that's a, that's and it, you know, man. and you know what occurs to me too is we talk about <laughs> teenagers. I think this is the way a lot of people relate to their emotions. Yes, absolutely. I think it's the same thing. So I think if you really want to practice these skills, practice them on yourself. You start self-parenting. Mm -hmm. You start self-parenting. It's all the things that we've said. But really, it's like the instant reaction to the emotion. You know, oh my God, I had a thought about the future, and now I'm now I'm scared. Now I feel scared. Well, how do you deal with that? How do you talk to that? How do you relate to that? That's the practice. The practice is self-parenting. You know, and that's not easy to do. And most of us aren't great at it. Right? A lot of us haven't had great. You know, our parents weren't so great. I mean, some of us were lucky and had great parents, but a lot of us, our parents, you know, you think you know what you're doing when a parent, but you really don't know what you're doing. It's terrifying. And really the only thing you can count on is when you line up with love, what you're saying to yourself or to your child comes from a place of love, it's going to work. Mm. Okay? Well, and if it comes from a place of fear, which could be anger, it's not going to work. And it's really that simple. I was just giving this example to someone today. If you, if you had a kid, and they needed an antibiotic. And they're like, I'm not taking that, it tastes disgusting. Like you can't, and they're crying and they're hysterical. Really, a reasonable parent would not say, okay, never mind, forget it. It's gonna upset him too much. He's not gonna like the flavor. No, are you kidding me? You're taking this thing, I don't care how upset you are, right? And in that situation, we're fully lined up with love there. Right. But when it's over something like being up too late with your cell phone or, mm. you know, I, I don't know, whatever else teenagers get into, suddenly we get all clouded with, I don't know, and the other kids are doing it and am I mean and what's going on? <laughs> they're having such a hard time with the world the way it is. And, and all that's important, but it, it sometimes takes us off that road with our kids. And you have to be confident enough to parent from that place of love. And when you do that, your teens know it. They do. Then they might still have a, I hate you. There might be doors slamming, the whole thing. And that's where you find that loving, like, okay, I'm sure I did that to my parents too. Right. But the crazy yeah. is often they come out like an hour later and they're fine. Yeah, yeah. Like, really? Look, I thought, that's it? Yeah, because I've been holding on. I've been swirling. <laughs> and, when, and, when, and when you get to that, when you get to that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going in to fix something. And Jennifer, I, I learned this from you is what is the intention there? Is the intention to fix or is the intention to connect? If the intention right. is to connect, yeah. then you stand a chance. 
And you know if what? the intention is to fix, everybody's going to be drained. Yeah. And you're going to lose it. And you're going to have, mm -hmm. right. And here's the thing. Anytime we go into fix, really, if we just break this down, what are we really doing? You need to behave differently. I need to fix you so I can feel better because I can't feel good when you make decisions like that. Right. <laughs> I want to feel better. Yes. I want to feel better. Yeah. And, yeah. It'll, and, when, and anyone who's on the opposite side of you will feel that. But when it's, when it's, I love you enough, throw whatever you got at me. I love you enough to be firm here. This is, you know, I, I love you enough for you to be mad at me. This is not happening. The phone's going or you're grounded or whatever. You're not going to have the car for a week or whatever it is. And they'll make a big noise and they'll walk away. And guess what? They'll actually be mad for a while and then they'll be okay. Mm -hmm. And often they'll feel loved, which is, we don't always think of that limit setting mm -hmm. as love, but it is. It is. Yeah. So this is all self-parenting. These skills are the skills of a parent turned on yourself. For some reason, since I was a kid, I feel the comedians are going to be the people who are going to have one of the biggest impacts in teaching the masses about mental health. And, and I think the way they're, I think the fact that they're going to come up with a new, that, that the more people can be trained and can be aware who are performers, entertainers of all kinds, but specifically comedians, mm -hmm. they will be able to teach these skills better than anybody can do it because they'll be able to entertain with it. Yeah. And when you can entertain with it, you have a new genre of entertainment. You have, you have reality TV, a bad example because you don't want it to be reality TV, but what you're going to have is you're going to have something that looks like entertainment, but actually has skills within it. Yeah. And that is my mission because it has to be accessible to the masses. Yeah. The people who are going to shop at Whole Foods, no, no disrespect, I mean, I do too, but they're going to find support. It's the people who don't have money. And that's a lot of people now uh, and who need to learn things to self-care, need to learn skills of self-care, need to learn mental health skills. Mm. Zoe, well, tell us, tell us what, how, how people can help with comedy gives back or how they become aware. So if you're a comedian who has lost gigs through COVID-19 um, and have not applied for the emergency relief grant, uh, you can do so by going to comicisback.com and you will see the appropriate tab to apply for a grant. If you need other resources um, and you're a comedian, please join our Facebook group, Comedy Is Back Resources and Community Group. That is where we have our um, access to resources. So, you know, whether it be access to mental health, uh, we do Thursday uh, Comedy Is Back Connects where we gather the comedy community virtually and we either bring somebody in from like the um, CPA to help do your taxes or help apply for EDD or how to self tape, right? So all these tools, right? Maybe you guys want to come on one and uh, help, but you can, so if you're a comedian that needs help, if, if you want to donate, uh, go to comedygizback.com as well. That would be great. And if there's any other, um, services you can find it on our website and and please you know email if, if you're in trouble and you're a comedian we'll, we'll we'll figure something out we'll get you to the right people you know we have a lot of great resources and social work you know to help make things a little bit easier if we can you know creating this you know safety net you know we just did a we just did a team for the dd Dee Dee hirsch alive and running 
a virtual event. And if you're, the, the, all those funds go directly to Didi Hirsch. They're a partner of ours. And we have, you know, if a committee needs suicide um, prevention and education from family members or themselves, that they can get it through Comedy Gives Back through Didi Hirsch. And if you want to partner, there's lots of ways to partner, you know, do a comedy night for us. And I have to say, if this, the kind of support the comedians give each other, usually, mm. if, if that support were coupled with, you know, education and information and, and knowledge about how to, you know, how to, how to take care of yourself mm-hmm. when these things happen inside of you, it, it would be the joy of a lifetime to see people that I love who are so talented happy. There's nothing wrong with being happy. It's actually a pretty good thing. Urkel. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's, it, there's nothing. Did, he, did Urkel say that? Yeah, Urkel. That's who I got it from. That's my guru. A lot of people think that you listen to, you know, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, but no, it's actually two people. It's, it's Eddie Pepitone and Urkel are the two influences. Life by Eddie and Urkel. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. I, it, is it is National Suicide Prevention Month now. I don't it know. I, I just want to say that if you're, if you're somebody who has some very serious things going on and needs help immediately, um, you can call 1-800-273-8255, 1-800-273-8255. It's a lifeline. It's a national lifeline where you can talk to somebody 24 hours a day. So know that. Find us. Uh, find Mental Health Comedy wherever you get your shows, but also at Make Light Media. Make Light the word make and light together media.com find us there and subscribe we have facebook we have the pages are up and we'd love to hear from you i have heard from a number of people that they've listened to the show they've tried some skills that jennifer has brought up and that they've worked and it's such a it's such a great thing to hear and i've done them myself so Keep listening and let's interact. Let's make this community, uh, let's in, make it a bigger community and make it a community that helps each other. We all need it right now, especially. And it would be hard to believe that I'm a comedian, but I have been a comedian in the past. Uh, and I'll go back to it uh, at some point on the show. <laughs> but but that'll come, uh, that'll, I feel like these things are really, you know, really important. These skills that you can use in the moment are things that we all need. And I want to thank you, Zoe. Thank you for putting up with, with all of the tech stuff, the bunker stuff. In the bu- it was good to hunker in the bunker with you both, the technological bunker. And I feel a lot better, like just for all the teenage stuff, which is consuming for me these days, you know, and thank you for all those tips. And I do, I love how you approach the, like both of you with the practice that it's, Thing you know, you can always go back and repair all those things. I do. I just feel so much better after a, a day of a lot of sort of stops and starts. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a ple- it's a ple- it's a pleasure uh, having you. And and Jennifer, thank you once again. If you want to hear more, learn more, find more, you can do it all at connectedparenting.com. That's the word connected, followed by the word parenting.com. Jennifer has classes. She has material, she has a podcast, she has so many different things that are just like the skills that she shares on the show that are expansions of that and, and really education as to how to take better care of yourself and your kids and your family. So 
Nothing's more important than that, especially right now. And thanks everybody for listening. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I'm Ed Krasnick. See you next time.